You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is Premium Episode 3, FBI vs. Program to Kill, Part 1, or Behavioral Science or BS. Today I'm recording from UC Santa Cruz, home of the banana slugs. Go slugs. Have you ever noticed that while serial killers have probably always existed, or at least there's probably an ambient level of serial killing in modern society, you ever notice how the number of serial killers exploded in the 1970s to 1980s and then sort of dropped off in favor of like, I don't know, say mass shootings? You ever notice that there was an inordinate amount of serial killers in California, Texas, and Florida? You think anything was ever up with that? What if there was? To get a handle on it, let's take a look at the concept of serial killers. To get an academic look at the serial killer concept, I used a book from 1988 called Sexual Homicide, Patterns and Motives, which was written by Robert K. Ressler, an FBI agent, Anne Wolbert Burgess, a psychiatric nurse and professor, and John E. Douglas, another FBI agent. For reference, of course, these are the real-life inspirations for the three main characters in the Netflix show Mindhunter, and this book was the culmination of their early work depicted in the series. The book says, Serial murderers are involved in three or more separate events with an emotional cooling-off period between homicides. This type of killer usually premeditates his crimes, often fantasizing and planning the murder in every aspect, with the possible exception of the specific victim. Then, when the time is right for him and he has cooled off from his last homicide, he selects his next victim and proceeds with his plan. The cool-off period can be days, weeks, or months, and is the main element that separates the serial killer from other multiple killers. However, there are other differences between the types of murderers. The classic mass murderer and the spree murderer are not concerned with who their victims are. They will kill anyone who comes in contact with them. In contrast, a serial murderer usually selects a type of victim. He thinks he will never be caught, and sometimes he is right. A serial murderer controls the events. Whereas a spree murderer who often has been identified and is being closely pursued by law enforcement may barely control what happens next. The serial killer is planning, picking, and choosing, and sometimes stopping the act of murder. Finally, the murderer may have sexual reasons for killing. Individuals may kill to engage in sexual activity, dismemberment, mutilation, evisceration, or other activities that have sexual meaning only for the offender. Occasionally, two or more murderers may commit these homicides together, as in the 1984-1985 case in Calaveras County, California, where Leonard Lake and Charles Ng are suspected of committing as many as 25 sex torture slayings. Now, I don't have that much smoke with this definition. It's pretty good. It seems to hold up for the most part in speaking broadly about the serial killer phenomenon. Though notice how they lean into the case of Leonard and Eng, one of the more clear examples of their own pattern breaking. More on that in the future. The problem is, the FBI and its mouthpieces don't stick to the facts 
or stay particularly academic. Let's take a look at the book Mindhunter inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit. This book was written in 1995 by John E. Douglas, an FBI agent, the aforementioned FBI agent. Mindhunter was written as a popular, not an academic book, and it serves as propaganda. I will quote from the book. But a new type of violent criminal has surfaced in recent years, the serial offender, who often doesn't stop until he is caught or killed, who learns by experience and who tends to get better and better at what he does, constantly perfecting his scenario from one crime to the next. I say surfaced because, to some degree, he was probably with us all along, going back long before 1880s London and Jack the Ripper, who is generally considered the first modern serial killer. And I say he because, for reasons we'll get into later, virtually all serial killers are male. Serial killers may, in fact, be a much older phenomenon than we realize. The stories and legends that have filtered down about witches and werewolves and vampires may have been a way of explaining the outrages so hideous that no one in the small and close-knit towns of Europe and early America could comprehend the perversities we now take for granted. Monsters had to be supernatural creatures that couldn't be just like us. Now, notice right off the bat, Douglas contradicts himself. Serial killers have surfaced in recent years, and they might be an older phenomenon, including legends of witches, werewolves, and vampires. I realize that I am doing an uncharitable reading here, but he is both acknowledging that the serial killer phenomenon exploded recently, and that it might be something that has always existed. Like, which is it? I continue with Mindhunter. Serial killers and rapists also tend to be the most bewildering, personally disturbing, and most difficult to catch of all violent criminals. This is in part because they tend to be motivated by far more complex factors than the basic ones I've just enumerated. This, in turn, makes their patterns more confusing and distances them from such other normal feelings as compassion, guilt, or remorse. Sometimes, the only way to catch them is to learn how to think like they do. Hence the Mindhunter title, right? I love the melodrama of the only way to catch them is to learn how to think like they do. Oh, that's something, all right. Perhaps he's telling more than he means. So the book Programmed to Kill, The Politics of Serial Murder, came out in 2004, written by Dave McGowan. The book broke new ground in questioning the ontological constructions of, of things like serial killers, and it explores the way serial killers often do not fit the FBI's definitions. The book is occasionally frustrating, and it works off of several theses at the same time, not all of which are clearly stated up front. This can be difficult, but the book is quite readable, and the book's general premise is a healthy skepticism of the serial killer narrative. Nested within this skepticism, there are a couple assertions on McGowan's part which vary in controversy. For example, he lays out three core premises, right? First, that human trafficking and pedophile rings exist including a market for child porn, snuff films, and actual abuse of men, women, and children. He cites a number of them, you know, it's not really in dispute. Second, he posits that satanic organized crime exists, both cults and traditional organized crime. 
some of which might use Satanism as a attraction or a pull or a magnet for unhinged and or sociopathic personalities, and some of which might be genuine in the sense that they genuinely believe it. Third, that disassociative identity disorder exists, formerly called multiple personality disorder, and that the government was studying weaponizing it through the MKUltra program. Now, the main argument that the book is leading us towards is that serial killers can and have been intentionally created, that they have been weaponized in service of both intelligence agencies and satanic organized crime, and that their crimes have included murder-for-hire, drug trafficking, and human trafficking, and that some of the serial killings are covered for these purposes, while other of the killings are what the authorities say they are, i.e. killings based off of a serial killer's private compulsions. The main implication here is that serial killers are not as solitary as we think they are. Whether that's to say that they were created through mind control or part of a cult or organized crime network. Now there is a lot of evidence to support this theory. Let's get into a few cases. In 1978, FBI agents Douglas and Ressler started to interview serial killers as part of their behavioral science unit at the FBI. If you'll notice, the acronym for their unit is BS, the irony of which is not lost on them. A chapter of Mindhunter was titled Behavioral Science or BS, which I mean, there you go. A good place to start is with Ed Kemper, because that's where the FBI started as well. I quote from the book, The first felon we decided to go for was Ed Kemper, who, at the time, was serving out his multiple life sentences at the California State Medical Facility at Vacaville, about midway between San Francisco and Sacramento. We had been teaching his case at the National Academy without ever having had any personal contact, so he seemed like a good one to start with. Whether he would agree to see us or talk with us was an open question. Now, my words here. It was only a few years prior that Vacaville was working on experiments with aggressive and mentally unbalanced inmates. The things they were doing to these inmates was horrifying. They were doing projects ranging from aversion therapy to psychosurgery. Now, in charge of this was a man named William Herman, who was, among other things, Ronald Reagan's counterintelligence advisor. William Herman had worked in a psychological operations unit in Vietnam and Cambodia. At Vacaville, Herman worked with a man named Colston Westbrook. Their work there was to start a thing called the Black Cultural Association. In this program, they were doing group therapy. Think of Maoist struggle sessions here. They were giving inmates drug treatments that turned them into zombies, their words not mine. They were carrying out electroshock therapy. And out of this black cultural association came Donald DeFries, a.k.a. General Field Marshal Sinkyu, who escaped, quote-unquote, and started the Symbionese Liberation Army. Of course, they would go on to do bank robberies, you know, some assassinations, they kidnapped Patty Hearst, all of that stuff. Now, the people who started this, of course, were counterinsurgency experts. And the Symbionese Liberation Army was a counterinsurgency psychological operation. All of this was happening at Vacaville only a few years 
before they visit Ed Kemper at Vacaville. Just as context. Also, other freaks and or government assets housed at Vacaville included Charlie Manson, Bobby Bolazal of the Manson family, LSD guru and government asset Timothy Leary, and many other very interesting inmates. Now, back to Mindhunter, where Agent Douglas is describing Ed Kemper's background. The facts of the case were well documented. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California. He grew up with two younger sisters in a dysfunctional family in which his mother, Claire Nell, and his father, Ed Jr., fought constantly and eventually separated. After Ed displayed a range of weird behaviors, including the dismemberment of two family cats and playing death ritual games with his older sister Susan, his mother packed him off to live his mother packed him off to live with her estranged husband. When he ran away and came back home to his mother, he was sent to live with his paternal grandparents on a remote California farm at the foothills of the Sierras. There he was miserably bored and lonely, cut off from his family and the little comfort that the familiar surroundings of his school afforded him. And there, one afternoon in August of 1963, the tall, hulking 14-year-old shot his grandmother, Maud, with a 22 caliber rifle, then stabbed her body repeatedly with a kitchen knife. She had insisted he stay and help her with the household chores, rather than accompany his grandfather, whom he liked better, into the fields. Knowing Grandpa Ed would not find what he had done acceptable behavior, when the old man returned home, Ed shot him too and left the body lying in the yard. When questioned by the police afterwards, he shrugged and said, I just wondered how it would feel to shoot Grandma. The seeming motivelessness of the double murder got Ed a diagnosis of personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type and a commitment to the Atascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. He was let out in 1969, at age 21, over the objection of state psychiatrists, and placed in the custody of his mother, who had left her third husband and was now working as a secretary at the newly opened University of California, Santa Cruz. By now, Ed Kemper was six foot nine and weighed in at, at around 300 pounds. Agent Douglas makes an interesting point here. And I quote, At the time Ed Kemper was active, Santa Cruz could boast the unenviable title of serial murder capital of the world. Herbert Mullen, a bright, handsome, diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, was killing both men and women, he claimed, at the urging of voices directing him to help save the environment. Then Agent Douglas cites Kemper, Herb Mullen, and John Lindley Fraser. Agent Douglas is being deceptive here. First of all, he's shit-coding environmentalism by linking it to Herb Mullen. And Douglas is leaving off the fact that Santa Cruz's murder rate was astronomically high, just off the charts at this time, including a whole bunch of murders not suspected to have been committed by serial killers. There was clearly something else going on at Santa Cruz apart from three serial killers. As if that's not enough, right? I will quote from the book Program to Kill. To briefly recap, no fewer than six serial killers and or mass murderers were all spawned from the Santa Cruz, San Francisco metropolitan area in a span of just over four years. 
we're talking Charles Manson, Stanley Baker, Edmund Kemper, Herbert Mullen, John Lindley Frazier, and the Zodiac Killer. And this is at a time when serial killers were a rare enough phenomenon that they hadn't yet acquired a name. Also, Herb Mullen, cited by Agent Douglas as a serial killer, sort of strains the definition and pattern. I quote, program to kill on Herb Mullen yet again. The seemingly random assembled set of crimes credited to Herb Mullen stands as perhaps the most ludicrous use of the term serial killer on record. The first victim was a homeless man beaten to death with a baseball bat for no apparent reason on a lonely stretch of road. The next was a girl who was repeatedly stabbed, then sliced open and mutilated. The next five victims were all killed in a single night at two different residences, both occupied by known drug traffickers and their families. My words here, if you'll notice, none of Herb Mullen's killings really match the slow, steady progression of a private compulsion, of a private sex compulsion, leading to more elaborate, refined versions of the same killings. No, instead, that just sounds like the cops pinning a bunch of crimes onto one guy. Though far be it from me to question, right? Now, to get back to Ed Kemper and Mindhunter, Agent Douglas lists off Ed Kemper's crimes as the co-ed killer. I will skip them because they're not under dispute here. Ed Kemper definitely killed eight women in a relatively short spree, along with his prior two murders as a minor. Mindhunter says, The first thing that struck me when they brought Ed Kemper in was how huge this guy was. I had known that he was tall and had been considered a social outcast in school and in the neighborhood because of his size, but up close he was enormous. He could have easily broken any of us in two. He had longish dark hair and a full mustache, and wore an open work shirt and white t-shirt that prominently displayed a massive gut. It was apparent before long that Kemper was a bright guy. Prison records listed his IQ as 145. And at times, during the many hours we spent with him, Bob and I worried that he was a lot brighter than we were. He'd had a long time to sit and think about his life and crimes, and once he understood that we had carefully researched his files and would know if he was bullshitting us, he opened up to us and talked about himself for hours. His attitude was neither cocky and arrogant nor remorseful and contrite. Rather, he was cool and soft-spoken, analytical and somewhat removed. In fact, as the interview went on, it was often difficult to break in and ask a question. The only times he got weepy was in recalling his treatment at the hands of his mother. Having taught applied criminal psychology without necessarily knowing everything I was saying was true, I was interested in the age-old question of whether criminals are born or made. Though there is still no definitive answer and may never be, listening to Ed Kemper raised some fascinating questions. Unquote. Oh, I'm sure it raised some questions, all right. And that's right, you heard it straight from the FBI. No one really knows if criminals are born or made. Truly, it is a chicken or egg situation. As a side note, I have watched all of the Mindhunter series on Netflix. It's okay. I mean, if you're into this stuff, you've probably already watched it. But if, if you haven't and you're into this stuff, check it out. But I would say that 
the Ed Kemper episodes are probably some of the best of the series. Phenomenal acting, and so on. Back to the story here. The book Mindhunter recounts Ed Kemper's abusive childhood. And this is important because Agent Douglas makes Ed Kemper's childhood sound like it was mostly emotional abuse. And he even makes some half-hearted apologies for Ed Kemper's mother, which is kind of deranged. Then in the book, talking about Ed Kemper, the book talks about Kemper's experiments killing animals as a child, Ed Kemper's attempts to become law enforcement, his successful attempts to befriend law enforcement, a lot of serial killer things you might expect, right? I mean, by 2021, the serial killer concept is pretty well saturated in the culture, so I'm sure a lot of this is not new to you, dear listener. Then Agent Douglas goes on to explain, through Ed Kemper's words, a lot of the serial killer stuff, like how serial killing is all about manipulation, domination, and control. He explores Kemper's hunting methodology, sort of a loose classification of serial killer types. He explores the emotions that Kemper had raping, killing, and cannibalizing. It's kind of prurient, but of course the cops and feds who write books about this stuff know that that's half the reason people read them, right? Sort of comes with the territory. So, there's a couple things that FBI agent Douglas leaves out when talking about Ed Kemper, and these things are sourced by Program to Kill. Now, you might have noticed, if you were listening, that Ed Kemper was sent to Atascadero State Hospital as a minor, where they were doing experiments on behavior modification. Ed Kemper's records might have been sealed for more than one reason than that he was a minor, if you catch my drift. While Ed Kemper was at Atascadero, on staff was a Dr. Donald Lund, a Navy man who became a celebrity psychiatrist. He was involved in many, many famous serial killer cases. More on Dr. Lund later. Ed Kemper's father, Edmund Emil Kemper Jr., was a special forces operative whose specialty, according to Ed anyway, his specialty was suicide missions. Kemper's dad also spent two years working on the U.S. Atomic Bomb Testing Program, as did the father of the so-called Sunset Strip Killer, quoting Program to Kill here. Though it appears that efforts have been made to whitewash Kemper's childhood, there are clear indications that it was a horrifyingly abusive one. At one point in his young life, Ed was made to live in a dank, dark basement for eight consecutive months, the only access to which was through a trapdoor hidden beneath a kitchen table. From the age of eight, Ed engaged in an incestuous relationship with an older sister. At ten, he killed and beheaded his first cat, planted the severed head on a spindle, and thereafter prayed over it. According to chronicler Margaret Cheney, he was prone to zombie-like fits of staring, which is another way of saying that he had a strong tendency to dissociate. Notice that Ed Kemper's childhood is much worse than Agent Douglas portrays. Notice that Agent Douglas pretty much skips right over, skips right over potential occult significance to severing a cat's head and then praying to it. He skips over 
the incestuous relationship between Kemper and his sister, he really kind of whitewashes the abuse that his mom inflicted on him. He certainly doesn't mention special forces and atomic energy commission connections. And he doesn't talk about how his, how Ed Kemper's mother's social worker status assisted her in reintegrating Kemper back into society. Assuming that's what happened, which, again, that's also questionable. All I'm saying is there are a lot of unanswered questions about Ed Kemper, and if you were to read the Mindhunter version, you would get a sanitized version of what happened. Not that this is letting Ed Kemper off the hook or anything. And Kemper's dissociating is indicative of Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID, which MKUltra specifically studied. And they were doing that at Atascadero and Vacaville, which Kemper was at both of those facilities. Now here's another weird thing about Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper and Herb Mullen both started their sprees in 1972 and were both caught in early 1973. Now that's extremely unlikely, statistically speaking, unless, you know, there were forces that were not reported if you catch my drift. Here's another weird thing about Kemper and Mullen, and I quote the book. One particularly bizarre aspect of the crimes attributed to Ed Kemper and Herb Mullen is that the body of one of Ed's alleged victims and the body of one of Herb's alleged victims were found buried in virtually the same isolated remote location. As Kemper himself noted, the body of his victim was discovered amazingly close, amazingly close to where the girl from Cabrillo was found up there, stabbed. In their trials, both Kemper and Mullen testified to their horrific crimes. Which, if any of you know about the law, I mean, very few competent lawyers, even public defenders, are going to allow their clients to testify in this type of trial. Certainly not to testify to their horrific crimes, unless maybe the point of their trial was to establish themselves as guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt, case closed, right? I mean, no one's really saying Ed Kemper's innocent. Like, I'm not saying that. Program to Kill is not saying that. But there are weird things about these cases. Further, both Mullen and Kemper claimed to hear voices in their heads. And I quote from Program to Kill, The phenomenon of hearing voices, though considered by psychiatrists to be auditory hallucinations indicative of delusional thought processes, is actually a quite logical manifestation of both multiple personality disorder and mind control programming, the two frequently going hand in hand. In all probability, what the voices represent are the various alter personalities of a person with severe dissociative disorder communicating with that person's core personality, which has no conscious awareness of the alters and so experiences their voices as disembodied voices in their heads. The voices, in other words, are essentially a one-way internal conversation between the different personalities inhabiting the same body. In a sense, then, the voices are not a delusion at all, for the afflicted person is not imagining that someone is talking to him. Someone is actually talking to him. The problem is that the person is unaware that the person talking to him is actually within him. He is, in a very real sense, talking to himself. Ed Kemper was probably familiar with the notion of voices in the head. As he once said, I believe there are two people inside me. 
Kemper also described experiencing a dissociative state while going about his grisly work. He said, It's almost like blacking out. You know what you're doing, but you don't notice anything else around. Ed Kemper was judged sane and guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder, giving him a career total of ten homicide convictions, just like Herb Mullen. Unquote. Now, like I said, Mullen and Kemper were both caught around the same time and were both placed in adjoining jail cells. They were both given the same defense attorney, they were both examined by the same psychiatrist, and their cases were prosecuted by the same DA, at least until the prosecutor bowed out of the Mullen case due to a medical emergency. Kemper and Mullen were both found guilty, both determined to be sane. They were both sent to California's Vacaville Medical Facility, which, like we've talked about, was a hotbed of covert intelligence operations. Not long before their killing sprees began, both men spent a considerable amount of time in mental institutions, both voluntary and involuntary. In the two years leading up to the convictions of Kemper and Mullen, at least 74 men, women, and children were killed in the state of California by released mental patients. Now, I'm noting that President Reagan defunded state mental hospitals in 1981. So apart from any Phoenix program, domestic gladio type stuff, there's also a political incentive here too. The very first step, if you want to privatize a public good, the first step is to make the thing dysfunctional, right? Let's talk about conclusions here. The FBI's framework for understanding serial killers, as put forward by the book Sexual Homicide, does not strike me as false or incorrect. The propaganda put out by FBI agent John E. Douglas in his book Mindhunter, and the Mindhunter TV show, however, is full of sins, mainly sins of omission. Mindhunter is equal measures, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion for himself and the FBI, and obfuscation of any and all facts that might point to something else going on other than deeply damaged people committing horrific crimes. Agent Douglas never makes any allowances whatsoever for co-conspirators, for behavior modification experiments, for brainwashing, for cults, for any occult or satanic motives, or to any networks or organized crime involved with serial killers ever. And in the world of Mindhunter, there's a sharp division between serial killers and all other types of crimes. As it turns out, Mindhunter the book is as fictional as its TV adaptation. Thanks for listening, dear listener. You are already on the premium side, so just let people know about the show. I think that I will probably do at least one or two more episodes on the FBI versus Program to Kill. If you like it, let me know. And if you don't like certain content, let me know. I like to get feedback, and I certainly want to give you guys what you actually want to hear. So, either way, I need to be on my way. I will see you next episode. And God bless.
I was locked up on Christmas. Ain't get to see my niggas. Ain't get to hug my mama. Couldn't even give her no kisses. Can't even post on my Instagram. Could he pussy nigga be snitching? Everybody acting suspicious. Might probably say that I'm tripping. When I'm all alone in my jail cell, I tend to get in my feelings. And all I smoke is that loud. Don't pass me no midget. And I'ma smoke all of my pain away. Cause that's the only thing that gon' heal it. I don't understand you women who go around pretending as if they really fuck with me. So I love them all from a distance. Cause the same bitch say she down the ride. Be the main one who tricking. Got my limits with promethazine. Cause every time I wake up in the morning, I got murder on my mind. AK 47s, Mac 11s, Glocks and Nines, and all these pussy niggas. I got murder on my mind, bitch, I got murder on my mind 